WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and John, who screens your calls at 888-876-5593, walked by earlier when I was taking that old Destination 45 and putting it into the computer, and he said, oh, is that a nominee for the world's worst hit records? And I just, I just glared. And of course, I understand why he said that, because, you know, I'm, I'm all about R&B and soul, and, you know, Carl Davis had to produce it, and that kind of stuff. I said, that's one of my all-time favorite records. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. And I said, you don't understand. The Cry and Shames are my favorite pop group. And then he was seriously not believing I meant it. I do. I think these are the greatest little pop records ever. And I'm proud to have played uh, Could Be War in Love in the 60s on the radio incessantly. So there. So when we were talking about people to get for Monday, because we do trivia on Mondays, and usually in the first hour talk to someone from back in the day, radio or records-wise, I said, I want the crying shames. Ah, well, WGN delivered and got me Tom Toad Duty, and welcome to WGN Radio Tom. Raleigh, thank you so much. I'm glad that you uh, like that record. I love I it. I loved making it. <laughs> you know, I can tell that. And, of course, it was a remake of The Searchers. It was a Tony Hatch song written under a pseudonym. I always laughed about that. I said, what, he couldn't admit he wrote it? And Yeah, right. Uh, you know, but I, I listened to that, and I can hear that you guys loved it. So tell me about that session. You know what? I, I can tell you about what we we had done uh, we had recorded a Beatles song, If I Needed Someone. We were going to release that as our first single. And about a day before it was going to be released, uh, George Harrison put a hold on it. He didn't want it released in the United States unless they did it. So mm. we were stuck without uh, a song, and we had a, a release date. And we had uh, Destination was ready to print some things. So what we did is we learned a song the night before we recorded it. And it was the uh, 1963 version by the Searchers of Sugar and Spice. And uh, we learned that in uh, our manager's uh, basement. And uh, when we did it, uh, we, the song was you know, just a good song. But I did not like the melody. So what I did is I changed some of the things in uh, the melody that the Searchers did. I, I put in some of their harmony parts as melody parts. And we recorded it that way. And it sounded much, much fresher uh, when we did it that way. If you listen to the Searchers version and our version, it's, it's like a night and day difference. And what happened is we went into WLS, uh, actually went to Sound Studios, which was in the WLS building uh, down on Michigan Avenue. And uh, uh, what, what is the uh, – I'm, I'm – 75 years old, so I don't remember as much as I used to. Uh, you know, the, the street that goes, Wacker Drive, Lower yeah. Wacker Drive. And we went up uh, to record it at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we played, I think the instrumental took us about 20 minutes to do. Uh, we did one take on that. This was a three-track recorder that they had. It wasn't even stereo. And then uh, uh, they put a microphone out in the middle of the studio and we all stood around it, and we sang in it and balanced ourselves by, you know, listening to the, the playback monitors. And when we had it the way we wanted it, they say, okay, let's go ahead and record it. And we recorded it, and uh, they said, we're going to do a malt, which means we're going to sing it again the same way. And we did. And uh, because my vibrato is natural, 
it matched real easily. Uh, so, you know, it, the, the malt sounded exactly like the original uh, uh, version that we had recorded five minutes earlier. And we were getting ready to leave. We packed up our equipment. We did Sugar and Spice and the B-side in probably an hour total, uh, if you can believe that. We, we recorded both of those things in about an hour. And we were packing up and going downstairs and uh, we had everything in our, our truck, and we were leaving to go up on Michigan Avenue. We were going to go to uh, Congress Street and, and head out west that way. And as we got on Michigan Avenue, we turned on WLS, which was you know just the, the largest radio station in the world at that time. And Dex Card was on. And Dex Card is the guy who discovered us. Uh, he introduced us to our managers. And I can still remember to this day what he said. He said, this is a group I've discovered. This is the first time. This is the first time you're going to hear of them, and it's not the last. This is the Crying Shames singing their new hit, "Sugar and Spice." We had just recorded this thing. We were on Michigan Avenue, and Dex put it on the radio, and I mean, we almost crashed our car. It was just amazing. Oh yeah, that that's a that's a fairy tale story to be sure. I laugh. It is because, of course, I love it that people discovered you as as if you know they were discovering you from a foreign nation or something. I mean, clearly, yeah, right. You guys had been singing a while before you got to destination. Well, you know what? Our group uh, before we recorded Sugar and Spice, we had been together as a group for about eight months, and. Uh, we were a bunch of young kids. Jerry Stone, who was the founder of the group, and I went to uh, a junior college in LaGrange, LaGrange Junior College. And uh, I can remember sitting in the lounge with Jerry one day, and he said, you know, I'm going to put my group back together. Do you know anybody that can sing? <laughs> and I said, yeah, Jerry, I can sing. And <laughs> I had no idea. And I'm usually a shy person. I don't know why I said that, but I did. And Jerry said, okay, come on to a, a rehearsal on Sunday. I went there and rehearsed. I did five Beatles songs that I knew. <laughs> and I got a call from Jerry as I got back to my house. He said, okay, you're in. And <laughs> that was it. We started playing from there. We uh, changed bass players because the original bass player wanted to go a different direction. He was more into soul music, like, you know, oh, you are. And he was yeah. very good. And very honest, and he said, I, you know, I just want to go a different direction. So there was another guy at our junior college, uh, Dave Purple, who was a really great keyboard player. And he said, hey, I can play bass. And we had him come in for a rehearsal. And he did the same five Beatles songs that I did, and he nailed it. I mean, he was perfect, and he could sing. And that was the start of the group. Dave, uh, I found out later had never played the bass in his life. He just <laughs> learned how to do it the day before we played. Uh, we played for a while, and we changed some, some people. We got Dennis Conroy was on our drums. He was a 17-year-old kid from Downers Grove, Illinois. James Ferris joined the group. He was also 17. And he joined the group the day before we met Dex Card for the first time. And uh, we, our original uh, guitar player, uh, got pneumonia and was not able to play. So uh, Dennis said, hey, James can do this, and he can fill in easily. And I said, but we're not even going to have a rehearsal. He said, don't worry. James knows all of the Beatles songs. We went on and played, and we probably sounded better than we ever had. From that moment on, James was part of the group, thank God. 
He wrote most of the songs. He was an incredible guitar player, probably the best guitar player of his time, mm -hmm. and he was 17. When we did that, I was 20. I just turned 20. Uh, Jerry Stone, I think, was 21. Dave Purple was 21. James Fares and Denny Conway had just turned 18. Wow. And then we did Sugar and Spice. Yeah. That, that's just a great story. As I say, it comes through it. Part of the fact that you guys really enjoyed doing that, you could tell it wasn't the 86 take at 3 in the morning and you wanted to go home. But what I, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, what I found interesting about that, of course, I always thought it was your first record on Destination, but when you look mm -hmm. at the chart history, the Columbia I Want to Meet You actually charted before Sugar and Spice. Now, how did that happen? Well, you know, I, I I think the history must be wrong because, uh, to to be honest with you, with Sugar and Spice took off like a rocket ship, and it was I think top forty in the country, but it would have gone much much higher. But they couldn't keep up with the demand of the records. They couldn't press enough to get out to the uh, record shops, and uh, they sold our rights to Columbia, and they did it because Ron Riley, who was a big disc jockey right. back at that time, his brother was the head promo man for Columbia in Chicago. And we signed through him, and we were with them. And, you know, they pushed Sugar and Spice, so it had a little boost at the end, too. But they said, okay, well, you need another record. <laughs> and, you, you know, we were not in the business at that time. We didn't realize it. You just had to keep putting things out. So we had a very heavy touring schedule. We were probably playing two to 250 nights a year, which is a lot of playing. Oh, yeah. And we... We were playing up in um, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And to get to Green Bay, you had to go through Milwaukee. There wasn't the freeway all the way up there like there is now. So it was a long trip. And we played up in Green Bay, Wisconsin with Del Shannon, who was a super, super, super guy. Uh, Del uh, loved us. He loved the way we sang. He made us uh, sing for him in the dressing room a few times, you know, the harmony parts. Mm -hmm. And he said, you guys are great. You're really going to do very, very well, and your first record is super. And we said, yeah, but we've got to write another one, or, or we have to have another one. And he said, well, you know what? The way that I always did it is if I needed a record, I just wrote it. And James Ferris went, oh, okay, well, we'll write it. <laughs> I'm, serious. I'm serious. It was just like that. So on the way back from... Uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, we were in our van, and uh, James Ferris was sitting in the back with, with uh, Jerry Stone, and James was writing a song, and uh, he got up to the lead part of it, and he said, you know, this is only going to be about a minute and a half long, and Jerry said, well, why don't we extend the lead by doing this, this, and this, and they did, and it sounded really cool, and James said, Toad, come on in the back, I'm going to teach you this song, so I Want to Meet You was the song. And it was about a Playboy bunny at that time, uh, you know, that we saw in Playboy magazine. And we were going to record it the next day. We knew that, but we didn't have a beginning. You know, we thought, well, what are we going to do for the beginning? And, you know, we went through it and through it, and we, uh, we were practicing the vocals in a truck. And when we went, I first saw you in a magazine, I said, why don't we just start it with vocals? And that's what we did. So I, I Want to Meet You was written in the truck. We went back to Chicago and recorded it in the morning on no sleep after a job in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and it was colder than heck, and uh, it was a hit record. <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely it was. And, and there again, that's part of the infectiousness of your stuff that you can just you can just hear it. Actually, it's the flip side of that that's one of my all-time favorite records. So maybe we'll get to that, too, as we continue to talk with Tom Toad Duty of the Crying Shames. If you got any memories, because if you are a Chicagoan, you probably went to more than one appearance, dance, etc., give us a call, 888-876-5593. 8888 Raleigh on WGN James, that's a cry in shames. Could be war in love. It seems like it was just yesterday that song came out. And I remember the guy who was the Columbia promo guy in Miami was Chuck Thaggard. And he brought it to me and he said, what do you think? And I listened to it and I thought, this is one of the best records I've ever heard. Uh, that, that concerned him a bit because I was known for knowing how to just absolutely love the flops. But, but he pitched it to the big stations that, that played it and uh, it did pretty well down there. I was actually very surprised to discover that that record only got to number 85 nationally. And we're talking with Tom Toad Duty, uh, founder of The Cry and Shames, about that and a lot more. And I can tell, Toad, that you had a lot of fun making that, because on the album version, on a, crack, a Scratch in the Sky, I love the little part with the bell, and then you all break out in laughter. What was that about? Well, I tell you what, that was, uh, you know, for that particular song, we changed the lineup in the group, because... Uh, uh, Vietnam War was there, and uh, we lost some people. Jerry Stone and Dave Purple uh, didn't want to uh, travel anymore, so he, he left. He became a recording engineer. Uh, he won a Grammy Award yeah. uh, with uh, Isaac Hayes for Shaft. He was the recording yeah. engineer for that. So we got Isaac Guillory and Lenny Curley. And, you know, I, I haven't even mentioned Hook's name, Jim Pilster, who was one of the founding members of the Cry and Shames also. He was with us for the Sugar and Spice album and all flow for this. Now, the reason that you hear the laughter there is that uh, we did the final background on that at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And all of us just, you know, loopy. And we had a couple of friends there with us. They were friends of uh, uh, James Ferris and Isaac Guillory. Uh, one of them was uh, named uh, uh, Nancy Donahue. 
Her brother was Mark Donahue, who was a famous racer back at that time. And there was another girl who uh, actually sang uh, with Isaac on uh, uh, the In the Cafe song. Uh, she sang the French part. Her name is Nancy Pretty. And uh, Nancy uh, was a, a, an actress and did a lot of commercials back then. Uh, her daughter is Christina Applegate. So, oh, wow. uh, Nan- yeah, and Nancy was a very pretty girl, too. So, you know, we, we had done it, and we got to a point where we were going to do the finals, and everybody was singing different words. You know, yeah. I mean, we were that loopy. So they just left the mic on, and we were just roaring with laughter at that. And then they cut the bell in, and, you know, it was a nice bell you got there. Uh, but that's the reason it was. We were just way overtired. Well, it was just great, because, of course, there was that moment of silence that became so big in yeah. records. Then you hear the bell, and the nice bell you got there, and everybody just loses it. And uh, yeah. I, I just I just adored that part. And I was, I was sure that this record was going to be a hit, which, as I say, I'm sorry, maybe I killed it for you, because usually when I like them that much, they go absolutely nowhere. But were there any markets other than Chicago and Miami that actually played the heck out of it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, the thing that was so funny about that, you said it made it 85. It had been 85 for 52 weeks for yeah. one full year. Yeah, it you know it did real well in the Midwest, obviously. We sold like 200,000 copies in Chicago, Milwaukee, and uh, uh, in uh, St. Louis. And as it was coming off of the charts here, it was number one for five weeks that summer on, you know, the Midwestern chart. Yeah. As it was coming off of that chart, it was, you know, going like crazy in Miami. Right. And as it came down off of Miami, it was going like crazy mm-hmm. in uh, Dallas and Houston, Texas. And as it ended up in Dallas and Houston, Texas, New York got on it. And it, it did real, real well in New York in the late fall. And this was a summer song. So, you know, it was just crazy it would go one place and another columbia did not do a great job no. of promoting that uh, Wait, boy i'm telling you because your story is is the story of a rolling hit of course and normally that's precisely what happens when you're on an indie label and can't control your distribution but columbia right. controlled its distribution so we're going to pick it up right there we are talking with tom toad duty a founding member of the cry and shames my favorite pop group as far as that goes i know the list is not long for me but that's uh, uh that's among my favorite stuff and i've i've got something to play next that i got a question about that only tom can answer if you've got some two give us a call 888-876-5593-8888 raleigh on wgn radio
WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, Greenberg, Glickstein, Charles, David Smith, and Jones. Yeah, the customer's always wrong. We're talking to Tom Toduty of the Crying Shames that did that song on their third album. And I, I've always wanted to know this, and I never thought I'd get the opportunity to talk to someone firsthand who would know. Who the hell were Greenberg, Glickstein, Charles, David Smith, and Jones? Well, I'll tell you what. The Glickstein was Fred Glickstein who is the lead guitar player with the flock. We just used his name for that. But the song was written by Isaac Guillory, and it was uh, about lawyers. We were going through some legal problems with Columbia at that time, (laughs) and it seemed like every time we sat down with the lawyers, it was another thousands and thousands of dollars that went through. So we were frustrated, and Isaac wrote that. Uh, And it's funny, I was talking to Fred Glickstein earlier today, this morning, and uh, about 5 or 6 o'clock, I talked to Lenny Curley, who was the guy who sang late on that. And uh, right after I got off with him, Dave Carter, who was another guitar player and a singer who played with us on that album, uh, I talked to it about 6 o'clock. So we had uh, the whole greenberg Glickstein group. <laughs> That I talked to today. That's great. That that's just great. Well, I I figured it might have been lawyers, and I I, I knew there had to be it kind was. Of a, yeah kind of a story there. But I guess neither Greenberg, Glickstein, Charles, David Smith, or Jones were attorneys, as far as you know. No, okay. no. It just you know when when uh, he he said well you know it's Greenberg and and he said uh, you know Fred Glickstein's name sounds good, and I'll put in mm-hmm. some other things. You know, that uh, will sound like it's tintinabulation, so yeah, it'll yeah. stick in, in people's uh, heads. And he did, and it sounded real good. Oh, it's perfect. It's like Jerry Corbetta's record on Sugarloaf, Don't Call Us, where he's got the A&R. We'll call you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Got the yeah. A&R yeah. number of CBS in the background there on those tones. Yeah, yeah, I know, and and everybody should have their number. Yes. I wish you were an A&R person with CBS at that time. We would have been a lot further along than we did. <laughs> well, you know, I actually, a few years later, I, I worked for Epic in promotion, National Country, oh, though. Oh, okay. But one of, okay. The th- one of the things I had discovered there, and this is probably what happened with your records, too, is they were, they were dumping about, you know, 20 records a quarter at once, and they were only designating three of them as push records. So the promo, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So if the uh, promo guy wasn't going to make money, yours was at the bottom of the stack. And it's not only that, but what happened with uh, Could Be We're in Love, they were ready to promote the living crap out of that because they really liked it. They really did. But somebody, and when I say somebody, it was the head of the, the company, decided that, you know, the San Francisco sound was the next big thing. And yeah. it was. It was coming on real good. So they got a hold of a group, and they uh, recorded them, and they decided that they were going to take seven of their songs and make singles of all of them. Uh So our money went to promote Moby Grape. And unfortunately, I've got nothing against Moby Grape. They're really nice guys. But unfortunately, you know, their stuff didn't go anywhere. And Columbia dumped them. And the money they were going to use on us and the effort was used on them. So, you know, that's what happened to... uh, could yeah. be where I love. Hello, hello, Clive Davis. But you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, it was Clive. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the uh, the Beatles changed 
music so much popular music because prior to that it was a singles world it was a small man's business it was labels like destination or marvelous or something like that but as soon as albums started selling now this was big business and of course in 65 they threw out mitch miller because of course he vowed it would be on his grave that columbia would release a rock and roll album and uh I guess within a year, because they brought back Goddard Lieberson from, from England for a while, that, that Clive rose to the top. And what was so yep. funny, he did, he did many right things. I'm not putting that against him. But it wasn't too many years where he got too big for his own room. And when he had Columbia pay for his son's bar mitzvah, that was it. I think it was yeah. close to a million dollars. It was. Yeah. And I had been in his own room on, in the Columbia building probably six or seven times, and when we met him, he was pretty good. I got to meet uh, uh, Mitch Miller as he was going out the door. I can remember him uh-huh. saying, he said, you're one of those rock and roll groups. And I said, yeah, I'm the Crying Shames. And he said, are you the singer? And I said, yeah. And he said, you have a bubbly voice. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That For Mitch, that was a compliment. <laughs> oh, it was huge. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. At that time, Columbia had Simon and Garfunkel. They had uh, the, birds, the birds, Paul Revere and the Raider, Chad and Jeremy, Billy Paul Joe Revere Royal. Yeah, Billy Joe Royal yeah. was it was all and, that uh, that July nineteen sixty five Columbia Records convention at the Americana Hotel in Bell Harbor, and they released that yeah. album. Yes, oh, I know, I was yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it was almost oh. a celebration. Mitch is gone, and that's when Goddard Lieberson was there, you know, taking over for the company temporarily. Oh, that's. I haven't heard that name in a long time. I knew Goddard. Well, you know, you, He's a nice man. He was a good guy. Yeah. I'm going to say he was a good guy. Now, the other guy that you mentioned, who I won't mention, was not that nice a guy. No. no. <laughs> but but like, like I say, in the end, but, you know, you knew Columbia was run by the, the, the lawyers because when you get to BlackRock and found out that the lawyer's office were above the executive tier on floors, it, you needed to know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and, and you can tell the the raw guts and emotion that we have on Greenberg Glickstein oh, yeah. that we certainly met those lawyers, you know. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and it just comes through. And normally, it was harder rock. It wouldn't be the kind of record that I would say, "Well, I like that," you know, that kind of thing. It was way out of my wheelhouse. But when I heard that, I, I chuckled the minute I heard it. I said, "Oh man, it's on Columbia. I understand this story." <laughs> and, <laughs> That's amazing that you have such knowledge of Columbia. So when I say things about them, you know I'm not digging too deep. No. It's it's really what it was, yeah. Right, you're being kind. And they were one of the few. At that time, they had 20 branches across America. And they were one of the few that completely controlled their distribution. So there was utterly no reason that they could not have promoted these records. But you're right. They got on that nutsy, psychedelic trip thinking, well, we're going to sell albums. And suddenly, singles and pop went out the window. That's exactly right. And most of what most of what they put out sold two copies. So I would think, you know, as an aggregate, maybe it wasn't the best investment after all. Yeah. Well, you know, they they made a mistake on it. I can remember uh, the promo man in uh, uh, New Orleans when we went down there. He said, said, "Your song, we play it. Yeah, and it's doing really good." He said, "But they want us to push uh, Moby Gray." Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. In New Orleans on WTIX and WNOE. Yeah, they're going to add that tomorrow. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
But and again, like, you know, as I'm saying this, I have nothing against Moby Grape. They're really good musicians. They were fine guys. Every time we had anything to do them, do with them, they were great. It was just, you know, they were caught on the other end of this insanity. You know, they were sure the they chosen were. child. And uh, they couldn't live up to the billing, so well, and it's I'm, a shame. I'm sure for them, there were a lot of heated m- meetings where they said, you got to be more commercial, boys. You know, oh, yeah. So yeah. That, we uh, put out seven singles, and none of them hit. You guys right. have got to write a hit. Yeah, you know? ex- exactly. Yeah, know. yeah, so I'm sure it yeah. wasn't, wasn't any easier for them. Well, someone wants to say hello to you, and that is Mark in McChesney Park, which is Rockford area. Welcome to WGN Radio, Mark. Yes, sir. Hey, Mark. How are you um, doing? Good. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing great. I I went to I was originally from Pennsylvania, and um, <clears throat> years ago, about 1966, 67, I worked in a resort area called the Cambridge Springs. And I worked for the oh. Cambridge Springs Hotel, and there was a fellow there that worked with me. His name was Roger Held, and uh-huh. he was a phenomenal uh, keyboardist as far as piano, organ, and drums. And I graduated from high school about 1969. And after that, I heard that he had gone to Chicago and auditioned for the Crying James as a drummer. Is that true? Uh, You know what? I, I don't remember his name, but this doesn't mean he didn't audition. We had changes of personnel because you know that the, the Vietnam War was going on then. So, you know, we had right. people that would be with us for a year and all of a sudden they were drafted. So uh, when we rehearsed or when we auditioned people, like for drums, we would probably audition 25 to 30 drummers. And, you know, the only ones that I really remember were the two or three finalists and obviously the ones that played with us. But, that, you know, that's the way it was when we had, had auditions there would be a lot of people. If he was a real good player, uh, he probably did audition with us. We had some, uh, one of the things about our group, I don't know if you ever saw us, but we were an incredible live act. I mean, we really, really rocked the place when we played. Yeah. All right, Mark. Great musicians. I never never really saw the Crying Change in in concert. I always thought the Crying Change were more of a rock band uh, for some reason. Yeah, synthesis. We, we played album. with the Who. Uh, a matter of fact, the Who opened for us a couple times, and uh, they said, "Man, you guys rock really hard." So, wow. yeah, I guess we were a, a okay. rock band. Yeah. All right, Mark. Thank you for calling. Okay, thank Appreciate you very much. It. All right, yeah, and synthesis is certainly harder than the uh, the other two albums. I'm uh, I'm talking with Tom Toad. And Nudie from the Crying James. And if you want to join yep. us, by all means, 888-876-5593-8888. Raleigh on WGN Radio.
WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. I'm talking with Tom Toe Duty of the Cry and Shames, and that, of course, is the Cry and Shames. It's the flip side of their first Columbia release, I Want to Meet You, with We Could Be Happy. Now, remember when that came out, I was making my own eight-track tapes. Yeah, right. Well, they were better than the four tracks that preceded them, but the eight-track tapes, and I would have all this just gut-bucket R&B and a lot of Carolina beach music, and then in the middle of it would be we could be happy. And I remember someone was driving. I, I had Corvettes at the time and with me and, you know, heard that and said, it's proof you're schizophrenic. And I said, I'm sorry, I like it. And I, I did like it. I thought that was just a cute little record. And I never thought I'd be talking to uh, to anybody from the group who's singing it. But uh, I thought it was a great song. Well, thank you. There's a story behind that one, too. Would you like me to tell you? Absolutely. Good. Uh, when Sugar Spice came out, we went on tour with a few groups, and one of them was uh, The Love and Spoonful. I think we played with them three or four jobs. Great guys, great band. Um, and, you know, they played that, that jug band shuffle type of stuff. Yep. When we got done with the tour with them, uh, James Fairs uh, gave me a call. He said, Toda, I wrote a song that I think would be perfect for your voice. Uh, why don't you come on over to listen and listen to it and tell me what you think? Well, he played that for me, and he's right. It was perfect for my voice, and I absolutely loved it. So we learned it, and that was something you know that we were going to record. As a matter of fact, when we did it, as the flip side, and we got done with it, uh, my vote and James's vote was that we release that as a single, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, hold off on uh, "I Want to Meet You" uh, for the next single, and uh, you know that we pretty much had it decided that, that was going to happen. But our managers brought the, you know, both sides to uh, Clark Weber mm-hmm. at WLS, and he said, no, I want to meet you as the hit. That's the one oh. I'll play. So, oh. <laughs> you know, it, it, which was fine. I want to yeah. meet you as a great song. But um, I really liked uh, We Could Be Happy better. I think it's, uh, well, they're both really good songs. I, I love We Could Be Happy. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, that, that was, was the story. Uh, that was my favorite of the of the two as well, and I just thought it was a was a great little record. And as you're saying this, and all, all all the people you toured with, and some of them that became almost household names for a while there, what mm-hmm. happened to the cry and shames? I mean, other than the Columbia debacle, and boy, I understand that. But it seems like you didn't continue with the band after that. What went on? Well, you, yeah, you know what? The, the truth is, well, I tell everybody, I say, well. We were a 60s band, and 1970 came, and we had to break up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is is that when we released A Scratch in the Sky, we really thought that was going to propel us to very, very large stardom. We yeah, really did. me too. Uh, we were very proud of that, and we thought, man, you know, we're going to be a big thing with this. Everybody that we played with, you know, back then said, Man, the stuff on that album is killer, you know, and it should do really well. And when it didn't, there was a lot of disappointment that happened. Mm. And the hardest thing about continuing with the group is if you've had any kind of success, 
you know, you, you go, well, you know, if we changed it all, we're not going to have the success, and I don't want to deal with it. And it, to be honest with you, we all just kind of gave up on the idea. You know, we just went, well, the crying shame was something that lasted for a while, and we'll just leave it alone. The truth of the matter is we should have stuck it out. We had a lot of talent in the group, both instrumentally and vocally, and we could have adapted, but we just didn't. It was our fault. Uh, it was our egos that got in the way of, of doing it. And, uh, you know, since that happened, I think that's probably the high watermark of everybody in the band was the Crying Shames. I know I got out of music totally and uh, uh, was in real estate, and I owned my own loan company for years. Wow. Uh, and the rest of the guys, uh, you know, just played and played around. And uh, we really didn't do anything until Jim Pilster gave us a call in 1982 to do Chicago Fest, James Jane Burns Chicago Fest. Mm -hmm. And it sounded great, and we had a wonderful time. And, and uh, Jim Pilster and I decided that we would play a series of Cry and Shame's jobs during the summer in Chicago. Uh, we hired a bunch of other guys, very good musicians, not the original group, but they're very good musicians and great singers. And we did that for, gosh, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And then uh, the Cornerstones of Rock happened. I'm sure you're aware of that. It, we were called, I can remember getting a call from the program director at uh, uh, WTTW and saying, we're going to put this on, would you be interested in it? And I said, yeah, that's great. So we, we did that radio or that t TV show, mm -hmm. Cornerstones of Rock. And since then, for the last five years, we've probably played five to eight jobs per year, I think. This year we had eight or nine lined up, and of yeah. course with COVID, you know, it just killed it. And we're all getting older, you know, and our fans are getting older. I just don't know. I would like for it to go on for another year maybe, but, we, you know, who knows? That's right. Who knows what's happening? But, but uh, it's even with that, you know, I was able to do, and we all were with the crying shames, were able to do something that 99.99% of of the you know the world never gets to do we were on stage with big hit records and they were playing them on the radio and yeah. people wanted to see us play well, and it was just a joy yeah and gloria stavers wrote your liner notes and back then of course for for teenagers especially teenage girls gloria stavers and 16 magazine was the big deal so to have yeah. her, have her do the liner notes that's uh, uh that's quite the coup but you know it's interesting you mentioned that about the 70s of course because after the harder rock started to die down on the pop stations you got a lot of that white wine crosby stills and nash or you know all these other people yeah, right. that i never want to hear as long as i live but in any in any event <laughs> your your stuff would have been terrific and it's yeah. uh, it's so funny how timing is but you're right when you, when you look at it very few people have a chance to do what you did and it's wonderful that you can frame it that way because far too many people would be saying you know I would have could have should I should rather than say hey this was a moment in time and we loved every minute of it and it's interesting because that's precisely what your uh, what your records tell me when I hear them you just you just loved every minute you know what? We really did. Uh, I, I, I hope that they expressed the, the sheer joy we had in making them and being on stage. I, there was nothing to me that, was, that, that could hold a candle to the experience of being on stage 
and performing in front of people. Yeah. And we got to some big venues. We played a, a series of jobs with the Monkees, and there were fifty to 60,000 people at each of those. And, you know, our, our jobs when the Crying Shames were at their zenith, we used to get ten to 20,000 people come to see us. Right. It was an amazing thing, really an amazing thing. I, I imagine that anyone who went to see the Monkees, well, they got to see a great band. It wasn't the Monkees, but they got to see a great band. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, guys, the guys from the Wrecking Crew were playing, yeah. you know, behind the, the Monkees. Yeah. Tommy Tedesco. And, sure. And, you know, I mean, just killer musicians. But we were, on the, you know, at the top of our game at that time, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so, that's the, yeah. that's the thing. They uh, even for people who weren't that familiar with you, they came away from that night probably remembering a lot more about the Crying Shames probably than the Monkees. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Th- that's absolutely true. And we met so many people. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people that uh, you know, you've heard of or people sure. that were heroes of mine that we got to meet. And the funny thing is is that the first time you meet a lot of these guys they're jerks, and uh, <laughs> and after a little while, they're, they're just, you know, they kind of say, you know, I don't know why we acted that way. We were told to kind of do that. Right. I said, yeah, I know. And, you know, they're now when I talk to them, they're just normal people. Of course Just like are. we were. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I thank you very much. You came away with a great life. I came away with some great 45s, and I cherish every one of them. And uh, thanks for spending an hour with us, Toad. Well, you know what? I am really glad to, and I was especially grateful that WGN is the the radio, the you know station that we're talking to. I have many great memories of WGN, yeah. and I, I I don't know how long you've been there, but I wish you a very very fruitful uh, and happy career at that station. Oh, that's so nice of you. Thanks. Hopefully, we'll talk again. We definitely will. Give me a call anytime. All right, thanks. That's Tom Toad Duty of the Cry and Shames. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio.